This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On February 19, 2021, archaeologist Stephen Acabado from UCLA met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss the Afugo rice terraces and the archaeology of pericolonialism. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio SIAM. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio SIAMS. My name is Maya Diedrich, and I'm the Hirsch Post Doctoral Associate here at Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest for this Radio SIAMS episode. Dr. Stephen Acabado is Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at UCLA. He received his PhD in anthropology from the University of Hawaii, Honolulu in 2010, and currently directs the Ifugao and Bicol archeological projects, and also serves as project co-director for the Taiwan Indigenous Landscape and History Project. He has published more than 20 journal articles and many more book chapters, and has written for public outlets such as Sapiens and the Philippine Daily Inquirer. He has three forthcoming books, The Archeology span of Indigenous History of the Philippines, Indigenous Peoples, Heritage, and Landscape in the Asia-Pacific, Knowledge, Co-Production, and Empowerment, and Emerging Perspectives in Philippine Studies. Professor Acabado's work addresses human-environment interactions, cultural landscapes, and Indigenous responses to colonialism, with a focus on the highland agricultural systems of Southeast Asia. His work addresses implications of and responses to colonialism, including in peri-colonial contexts, which he defines as, quote, areas where European military conquests were unsuccessful, but were economically and politically affected by conquests and subsequent colonial activities in adjacent regions, unquote. His work has incorporated a wide array of archaeological techniques, including the study of plant and animal remains, bioarchaeology, ethnography, spatial modeling, and artifact analysis. Importantly, descendant communities participate actively in Dr. Acabado's research projects, which link academic and community concerns and have encouraged the growth of indigenous, indigenous archaeology in the Philippines. As a touchstone for conversation today, we read recent articles focused on the Ifugao rice terraces and the archaeology of pericolonialism, published in the International Journal of Historical Archaeology, the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, and the Journal of Field Archaeology. Around the table with us today are uh, the digital table are four students who are members of SIAMS and who will be leading the discussion. And they'll introduce themselves in turn as we go around. But I'd like to start things off with a question. So Dr. Agobato, your arguments about the more recent origins of the Ifuga rice terraces in light of colonial incursions are intriguing. And from what I understand, the political centralization that occurred among the Ifugao at this time provided them with the strength that they needed to reject Spanish entry or taxation of any kind. And I was wondering how they managed to keep Spaniards out while still trading and increasing trade with the lowlands. Thank you, Maya, and thank you for uh, the invitation. And I'm really uh, happy to be here to share our work. Um, that that contention that um, the rice terraces became the, the 
the venue where De Fugao were able to consolidate their economic and political resources is a product of um, collaboration and interpretation of the data with the community. You know, De Fugao um, and, and the wider Philippine society think of De Fugao as, as uh, headhunters and warriors. So it's unthinkable for them to, to be told by an outsider that their ancestors went up to the mountains um, to avoid Spanish taxation and Spanish conquest. Um, they have this, the, the identity is, is based on, on the warrior culture that they would die instead of, 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 of escaping the enemy. But then um, when we started talking about their, their oral history and also um, what the archeological record says, um, it's apparent that they went up to the mountains to, to consolidate their political and economic resources, um, participating in the colonial enterprise and at the same time um, um, resisting the military attempts of, of the Spanish. So what we see in the archaeological record is a really high um, distribution of, of colonial period artifacts um, imported items that they could only have accessed by participating in, in lowland economy. Um, so on what we don't know is, is whether they were accessed via direct trade, or if we got going down to the lowlands to trade with, with lowlanders, or there were um, traders who would go up to the mountains to, to trade with, with, this, with, with Ifugao. And so um, they were able to maintain their, their identity um, and, and, and their culture through rice cultivation um, by actively engaging um, or co-opting the colonial reality. Um, they know that they didn't stand a chance uh, militarily against the Spanish um, but because of, of the, um, the, the organizational role of rice production and the rituals associated with, with rice production in Ifugao, um, they were able to intensify um, their, their socio-political organization where you, although we see them as, as egalitarian, um, they were able to militarily repel uh, multiple attempts by the Spanish. I think they, the Spanish tried to to um, subjugate them 12 times. Um, there was only one time that they were able to burn the village of Old Kiangan that's sitting in 1832. But even then, the, the Spanish were never able to, to um, establish a foothold or permanent foothold uh, um, in, in, in the region. And I think that's because you have both um, um, the, the, the mountainous terrain and, and um, every time they, they establish a camp, um, their uh, supply routes are cut off by, by other Ifugao groups. So it's both um, an active uh, um, resistance by going up to the mountain. It's a conscious decision. Um, and also now that rice cultivation is, 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 is dated to about the 1600s, um, we think that the sociopolitical shift that occurred with the shift with associated with rice cultivation 
um, allow them to to maintain their culture um, and at the same time participate in in the colonial enterprise thank you hi um i'm alice wolf i'm a phd student here at cornell in the medieval studies program um thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Everything you've been talking about is really fascinating. I don't, I hate to wrench the conversation in a totally different direction, but I'm afraid all of my questions are very agroecology focused because I thought that was such an amazing approach um, to your study. I thought I really loved it a lot. So my first question is um, regarding the livestock, especially in the uh, villages today, but um, I'm really re interested in the relationship between the livestock and the woodlands, especially the private woodlands that you talk about. Um, I was reading, I know you talk a bit about the isotopic studies from the faunal remains and the sort of mixture of C3 and C4 plants that the animals were consuming, but I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about sort of um, that part of the agroecosystem. Thank you, Alice. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I know the, the mechanics and, and uh, the basics, or right, I know the basics, but I'm, I'm not an isotope person, not even a faunal person. I, I would be able to identify a human bone with faunal, but um, the analysis is done by my colleagues. And I just, you know, I think that's my role as the supervisor, <laughs> the project director to look at the patterns. Um, but to answer your question, um, uh, the, the livestock, that before contact with the Spanish, we don't see a lot of domesticated pigs. Um, what they were um, subsisting on were uh, the Rusa Marianas, the Philippine deer, and, and about 90% of, of the um, uh, protein source, at least in, in the faunal remains that we've analyzed before contact was, was deer. Um, there were a number of chickens, um, uh, uh, monitor lizards, uh, and even dog, but dog we think is more um, uh, for ritual purposes. And that's also based on oral history. But in terms of, of, of our findings, um, the, the use of, of domesticated pigs and they call it native pigs um, because they, they're, they're very different from, from European pigs that now um, dominate the market. Um, um, so with, with the domesticated pigs, they were mostly for ritual purposes. Um, and I think in, in all over the Philippines and when I work, I'm working now in the lowlands um, um, in the region that I grew up in, in the Vico region, um, we also see the, a similar pattern um, where before the reduction, before the Spanish um, forced resettlement of um, the community that uh, we were excavating, the site that we were excavating show that the majority of, of protein came from, from the ocean shellfish. Um, there's also some, some uh, deer, Philippine deer remains, but we only see domesticated pig after um, uh, uh, the Spanish reduction. And so it, it think it's similar in the lowlands and the highlands that domesticated pigs were only slaughtered um, and, and eaten during, during rituals and feasts and not really for, for regular consumption. And so um, when we looked at the, the pattern, um, we're seeing uh, uh, like a, a, a correlation, and this is in Ifugao, between 
the shift to wet rice cultivation, the, the uh, um, uh, deforestation, uh, not, not really deforestation, but cutting down of, of forest plots, maybe for, for, for rice fields or other, or Sweden fields, um, and, and the increase in, in uh, pig, domesticated pig remains. Of course, there are also uh, there are the the wild pig remains outnumber the, the domesticated pig remains, and and when we my colleague uh, Chin Chin Liu uh, looked at the isotopes, there was a, a shift in in the isotopic signature from C four. We don't know what they are, what plants are, are C four because uh, in the Philippines right now we know that C four plants are mostly from the 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 new world from the Americas, um, but uh, C3, you have plant, you have, um, you have um, rice and sweet potato or taro, uh, not sweet potato. And, and, and we also see that shift in, in, in the, uh, the, the signatures, isotopic signatures of, of all the faunal uh, remains that we've, we've analyzed. And we think that's, that's that's management because they have to bring in um, they, they were, were bringing in the, the deer closer to um, uh, the communities where rice is is available and presumably they were grazing on on rice fields um, and and maybe some other c3 plants but there's a distinct change between uh, free rice and 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 or pre-contact um, animal uh, isotopic signatures um, and, and during the colonial period. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about how the shift to rice also affected the, the non-human members of the community. Um, sorry, I'm Jane. Uh, I'm an archaeology MA student um, studying Mediterranean environmental history and agriculture, um, especially the sort of hilly and marginal landscapes in Greece. Um, I'm really interested in your work about the, the interplay between environmental and socioeconomic factors when it comes to land use and uh, decision making. So in Ifugao, you describe rice cultivation as subject to both weather, pat weather patterns and social scheduling. And I was wondering if you could say more about the balance between the two, whether you see that change over time. Um, in particular, I noted in the Journal of Field Archaeology Arche article you mentioned um, increasing aridity from about 1350 to 1850. So any evidence that uh, climatic changes might have limited or encouraged um, these changes in agricultural strategies? Thank you, Jane. Um, that's actually uh, a, an hypothesis that we haven't um, supported yet with, with our, 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 the data that we have because we haven't been able to um, access or obtain the lake sediment core that we're, we were supposed to obtained uh, several years ago we have the equipment but we didn't don't have we didn't have the the technological know-how to use the equipment um, but our our model was uh, looking at the little ice age um, which would have uh, uh, made the lowlands very dry um, but the highlands would have been uh, relatively wet compared to what we see in the, the lowlands in the valleys of Cagayan and also on the western side of northern Luzon um, because of orographic rainfall. Um, although it would have been drier, um, the, the highlands would have been 
weather, so that would have been conducive to rice cultivation. That is, um, um, assuming that there was already wet rice in the Philippines at about 1300, 1800 or 1300 CE, um, we don't have any evidence of, of wet rice in the whole archipelago that predates um, AD 1300s or actually AD 1500s. Um, our, our argument is that wet rice cultivation probably intensified soon after Islamic traders came in um, and that uh, rice was probably introduced from, from Indonesia. And I forgot to mention this yesterday when um, Dr. Puruganan asked about that question. Um, and, and their findings uh, suggest that looking at DNA, that uh, rice in, in the Philippines um, um, are descendants, of, the rice varieties in the Philippines are descendants of, of, of wet rice varieties from Java that developed at about 3,000 years ago. And then rice in the Philippines diverged at about 1,500 years ago. So um, although we don't have that, uh, we don't have a DNA for rice, um, uh, the historic descriptions of, of rice um, being brought by, by uh, Islamic traders at about 1300s um, support that, that model. And, and that introduction also coincided with what the, with, with introduction of goats. Um, in the archaeological record. So I think um, with, uh, Alice might be interested in this, this, this the relationship between uh, goats and rice, and, and goats could be a, uh, a proxy indicator for, for the introduction of rice because goats were brought in by, by Islamic traders. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gerties. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Classics at Cornell. I'm um, working on um, looking at food residues in pottery in the ancient Mediterranean. Um, and because of that interest, I was really curious um, to hear more about the, um, the ceramics and particular the kind of increasing presence of prestige ceramics, imported prestige ceramics. So, um, your, the focus in the articles was primarily on the, their presence and um, occasional use in, in ritual contexts, um, but I, I wanted to know um, more on the theme of, of habitus and on daily practice and, and everything, um, which was a major theme of your most recent article, um, whether imported ceramics changed everyday practice as well. Um, and and if so, how do, how did changing food preparation practices fit into the larger story of resistance? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Actually, they didn't they did they didn't use the imported ceramics for for uh, food preparation for cooking. What they used them for was um, for rice wine preparation, beer, um, which is very important in, in the rituals and feasts. So without alcohol, they wouldn't have um, uh, rituals because they needed a beer, the rice beer for um, the uh, ritual specialists or shamans uh, to commune with the spirit world and also for everyone to consume um, uh, 
well, <laughs> the beer. Um, I actually think and I argue that um, that the the motivation to cultivate rice was to produce was for them to produce beer for the rituals and also for them to have rice uh, during the rituals and feast. So again, um, not everyone in the community is able to eat rice the whole year round. Um, even the landowners uh, wouldn't eat rice uh, because they wouldn't they would like to to save rice for for the rituals and feasts like conspicuous consumption um and so the importance of of of, of important ceramics is associated again uh with with prestige uh, uh, uh ownership of 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 uh rice land holdings um and and social social ranking social status um and then there are still a lot of of, of heirloom ceramics uh, tradeware ceramics um, present in ifugao and they're very they're they're invaluable and and that you can use that to pay for a rice field pay for a debt and so on but the the longer the life history of of, of the ceramic, the more expensive it is. Um, uh, they actually bring out the ceramics during rituals and feasts, and they would, the Mumbaki, the ritual specialist, uh, would recite the life history of that, uh, that, that particular item as if that, that item is a living person. Um, and so there's a, even within, I think just, just looking at all the, the ceramics, the important ceramics, um, would come up with a really good story of, of, of Ifugao history. Can I ask a really quick follow-up? Um, does that mean that, is there any evidence for um, creation of any other type of alcohol prior to rice cultivation, or is this also a new practice that came in, came in, um, in association with rice cultivation? That's a great question. I don't have an answer for you. Um, we know that in other Philippine cultures, they do uh, uh, sugarcane uh, uh, wine. They also do pineapple wine, but that's, that's introduced. Um, there's no clear evidence of millet um, because there's millet beer in Taiwan. Um, but for sure, in the lowlands, uh, there's a tuba, the coconut, um, coconuts from the coconut sap. I think I mentioned it in my talk uh, yesterday about coconut uh, beer being converted into the, the lambanog, the, the wine, I mean, the distilled spirit. Um, but we don't have um, archaeological correlates for, for tuba. Um, um, but the absence of, of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's the, the short answer. Um, there might be, um, but we don't know what they are. But but I think for sure um, the coconut, the tuba uh, uh, beer. Thank you. Hi, my name is Janan Jem, and I'm a second year master student in Siam and I'm currently working on my thesis uh, on the discourse of archaeological research and practice. 
and heritage management in de facto North Cyprus. And so my questions are um, a little different here as well. They relate to the project as a whole and the practice of archaeology. Um, and uh, in your 2019 paper um, on the short history of Ifugawa Rice Terraces, you highlight the relevance of community stories of descendant peoples for archaeological studies and interpretations. And uh, also in your 2018 article, um, Zones of Refuge, you mentioned um, the, the archaeological project at Ifugao, um was at the request by the descendant community um, to investigate the Ifugao origin myth. And so um, I have a couple of questions relating to uh, that aspect. Um, and so one of them is, besides the ethnographic work uh, within the community, and uh, that you've been conducting, um, what is the descendant community's involvement in the, uh, in the project? And to what extent um, are they involved in the research design and questions and the archeological processes and decision-making? Um, is that in the hands of the community? And, um, and I also want to know how that may have impacted um, new course offerings in education curriculums. So from like the grade school to universities, um, I know there's a couple in the region. Um, so how has the project impacted um, new students to the field? Thank you, Jen. It's great to see you again. Yeah. Uh, Jen and Rosman said 2016 when you were in my class. Uh, um, but yeah, so there were three questions. So I'll, I'll start with the second question first. And that's um, how the community became involved, or uh, the 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 the, the um, request for to do work in in the old Garen village. Um, so again, when when I started working in Ifugao in two thousand seven for my dissertation research, um, I made it a point that that the community will be involved, that they are collaborators and not informants, um, that I work with them um, and not work in their area. So in 2007, I did an attempt to, to, um, to reach out to, to save the Fugal Terraces movement and various organizations. Um, but because I'm an outsider, um, I wasn't really, uh, familiar with the internal power dynamics within within the communities that I work in, so it took me a while. Um, it took me about uh, until when I returned in 2011 to focus on the power dynamics, and then um, and then uh, uh, focus my effort on on trying to convince one person, <laughs> the head of the the Fugal Terrorist Movement that I'm serious about what I'm going to do. So it's like making a stand on the politics within the community uh, um, because we can't be uh, neutral outsiders um, when we're working with, with communities. Being there alone is impacting um, various aspects of, of their existence. I'm not saying that the Fugal are, are isolated, um, but because we're, we're our research right now is, I think, looking back, um, our, our work is now being used as a, 
as, as um, a tool to change uh, local history, although it's not yet in the national level, there are movements to, to highlight indigenous history. And I'll talk about indigenous history later because institutionalizing indigenous history is, is anathema to the idea of indigenous history um, because it's dynamic. And if you institutionalize it, you tend to, to put it in a, a static form. Uh, so anyway, going back to that uh, engagement, um, when I went back in 2011, uh, I, I asked if we can uh, uh, collaborate and they said, yes, maybe focus on, on the old Gangan village. And so uh, their, their collaboration and, and participation in, in the ethnographic and archeological work um, uh, was a consequence of that request to, for us to work in, in the old Gaman village. Um, uh, I tried to get them to participate in the archeological excavation. They wanted to, but then when they realized that it's hard work, <laughs> um, that it's not uh, the same thing as what they see in, in in the movies, um, after a day, they said, "Oh, you can do whatever you want in the excavations. Um, we'll be just, we'll just, we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll just participate in, in other aspects of, of the research." Um, but the initial step was uh, getting everyone, stakeholders, in a in one room, and I, I explained what I wanted to do. Um, as, as your question, um, the answer to your question is that they also have um, their interest in, in their history. So they asked if we can incorporate their research questions in, in the research uh, in, in the research project. And so we, we listed about 21 research <laughs> questions, research directions that we eventually uh, cut down into about uh, seven. Um, that we're still uh, uh, um, uh, pursuing up to this day. Um, but most of those questions are now being uh, uh, addressed by the community members uh, because of the collaboration. Um, uh, they are now able to, to filter out the, the um, you know, being a fish out of water it's hard for them to write about their culture because they're part of it. So one of the things that they that we've um, discussed during our collaborations is that it's easier for me to see the nuances of their culture because I'm an outsider. And so they took that as a, a as a model that um, oh we can just write everything and then ask for for comments from others about uh, you know, what's the what's the important aspect of what we documented. Um, and so their, most of their research uh, interests are geared towards uh, heritage conservation, um, an understanding, a nuanced understanding of, of their history, because as I mentioned, they never learned about their history from, from formal settings. They learn about their history based on oral history. Um, and, and uh, stories passed down from, from generation to generation. And so uh, with the establishment of the Fugao Community Heritage Galleries, um, that's now the venue where they talk about the archeology, span their history, 
and and what it means to conserve their their heritage. You know, at the end of the day, and when when we talk about conservation of the rice terraces, it's not the call of the archaeologists. It's not the call of the lowland Filipinos if the Fugaos are going to uh, conserve their terraces. It's their call if they want to conserve their terraces. Thank you. And would you say that then um, the uh, sort of heritage conservation um, importance, has that sort of come up to um, the sort of levels of you know university students and are they offering courses to learn about these kinds of I don't know best practices I know you said you know um trying to institutionalize sort of the maybe the origin stories or the indigenous um you know um uh stories um would be difficult to do but have they even begun maybe trying to teach students thank you for reminding me that I think this comes with age <laughs> Uh, uh, yes, um, I'm happy to say that um, the local university, the Fugao State University, um, instituted, um, I'm, I'm, I'm also going to take credit for the, for the establishment of the um, Center for Innovation, uh, Center for Indigenous Studies, um, which is a product of my collaboration with my Taiwanese colleagues who uh, we, we were funded by the Taiwan Ministry of, of Science and Technology to establish the Center for Taiwan Philippines uh, Indigenous Studies, Local Studies and Sustainable Studies um, that uh, we collaborated with the local university and the community. Um, and so they established the Center for Indigenous Studies to train teachers um, in infusing uh, some of their lessons with, with indigenous uh, knowledge systems, indigenous histories. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, you know, it, it, the, the institutionalization of indigenous knowledge uh, might be anathema to, to the idea of indigenous knowledge systems, but we need it um, because otherwise uh, when the generation of these knowledge holders are gone, then we wouldn't have any uh, source of information. We just have to, to uh, be aware that uh, cultures change, that cultures are dynamic, that whatever we learn at this very point in time will be uh, history tomorrow. And so that's in, that's in, in, uh, in Ifugao. Um, I hope that with our engagement with the Department of Education that we can um, initiate change in the national curriculum um, that they incorporate uh, more local history so that kids like me who, are, who grew up in, in rural areas who, who are not Tagalog will learn about history and not uh, the history of, of the Tagalogs. Well, there is the national history that we need to learn, but it's also important for us to learn about our own culture. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, secure about your cultural identity, then you tend to be more um, uh, uh, you know, productive. Great, thank you. I agree. Hi, this is Maya again, and I wanted to ask a question that 
builds on some of what Janan was asking. I was wondering, to, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how your Ifugao collaborators contribute to your interpretations of the data. And a couple of points I noticed in these articles included that one, there was initially a reluctance to maybe accept the more recent dating of the terraces, but that the resistance to Spanish rural narrative was more compelling. And, and so I was interested to hear a bit more about those conversations, if, if you can share that. And also, you mentioned wealthy Ifugao families today still possess some of these heirloom stoneware and porcelain jars, and that came up earlier in our podcast, too, in terms of the um, telling of the stories about these jars. So would you like to elaborate on any of those or further reflect on how your research outcomes shift based on your decolonizing approach? Thank you, my, my eight-year-old is screaming, so I'll, I'll close the door. <laughs> Sorry. So um, going back to that, uh, the responses to my work, uh, initially they wanted to take my head off. Um, um, because I was the findings um, of the archaeological research were uh, was impinging on on their identity, um, and so again, it was important to to engage them so that every time there is a a a, a um, controversial finding, then we can uh, discuss about it. Um, so when I returned, our first field season was in 2012. Um, we would I would be getting visits from from uh, <laughs> I would be getting visits from elders uh, from from uh, uh, unfortunately two of them well the two the last remaining. Um, uh, knowledge of local historians died in the last uh, three years, but uh, they were they would come in and they would ask me about uh, the findings and they would you know, of course give the, they would give me their mind they, they would they would tell me their uh, their ideas um, and it took about three years um, uh, for them to to uh, to really uh, Transform their their ideas about history. If we go history, because it's been told and it's been written. There are textbooks that that talks about Ifugao rice terraces being constructed by by Chinese refugees. So almost all of the models that that, that they were taught that anything everything came from the outside that they were incapable of, of doing this themselves they, they didn't think of that that way um, and so when we started having those conversations um, they started to, to to process and also change their their ideas um, and so one of the 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 one of the two the the last one um, uncle maning uh, he died, I think, two or three years ago. And one of the last things that he told my collaborator, Marlon Martin, is that, oh, you need to con continue this work because it's it's um, it's changing the way we we look at ourselves. Um, with the findings, we we don't really, I don't really. It there's still a lot of Ifugaos who who adhere to this the myth of the old the long history. That's because that's what. They've been told it's what you see in in 
um, tourist brochures, all the uh, banners uh, that welcome people, the 2000 year old terraces. Um, but uh, there's a lot of, um, also there's a lot more now that, that takes the new findings that, that um, empowers them, that they are not just mere observers in, in, in history, but they are active in, in, in their history making. Um, and so when we, we, uh, when we finally um, uh, analyze, we have the data, of course, the archaeologists, uh, we, we do all the analysis. And then I would write my, my own interpretation. But before I publish my interpretations, I, I ask them about their, their, their ideas. And so I would have to change when they, they think that my interpretation is strong. So we do, we have um, conversation and going conversations about the findings and, and actually most of the, the community stories, especially that move, movement from, from the lowland to the highlands. Um, it was written by an historian, but when I wrote it, mentioned it in, in one of my, in, in that article, uh, some elders. Oh yeah, we have that story from our our um, and from our great grandparents. That every time the Spanish showed up, uh, we would go up into this village uh, in the interior to avoid um, the Spanish. And so, uh, two summers ago, and just before we were supposed to be there last year, um, so two summers ago, we went to that that village that they mentioned. And it's an archaeological site. It was look, walking around, and you'll find the surface scatter of potsherds, uh, including uh, including imported ceramics, uh, littering this this uh, this village. There are only about three houses in that village now, but judging from from the surface scatter, it would have been uh, larger by then. Yeah, thanks for those rich insights into the community contributions. One thing to, I think, keep in mind for, for all of us is that, um, you know, um, they know the communities that we work with, they, they know their history. It's just um, uh, asking the right questions and also working with them, that's when they, they start thinking about uh, what they see in, in their surroundings. Uh, I was, as I mentioned, I grew up in, in uh, coastal rural Philippines. And I remember seeing, um, uh, crossing the river uh, when my parents won't allow me to go anywhere, but I'll go any, anyway. Um, so I'll, I'll cross the river some the river and now I'm remembering that that experience childhood experience that I would see potsherds and and you know ceramics all over the that that across the river so I, I think my my next project would be going down to my hometown and look for that that site this is Alice again so I had a sort of a different question which was um Specifically, I was really interested in the processing of the rice and the other crops. Um, like I've, I was thinking about Dorian Fuller's work in India, looking at rice phytoliths to try and identify processing areas. And I was wondering if any sort of work like that has been done or if there's any sort of ethnographic, ethnohistoric evidence for what um, the harvesting season sort of looked like and how that functioned. 
Okay. So there's really no study yet. Um, I've worked with Alan Farhani. He he was with me, although he he, he works in in the south uh, uh, southwest Asia, um, but he was with me for two years, and we did uh, uh, take some uh, samples from from uh, the settlement. So I was actually wondering why are we getting why are we trying to find um, rice remains in settlements when that's not the rice field, and so he was that that was his uh, idea to look at changes in consumption and and changes in morphology by looking at what people consume rather than where you, they they cultivated rice. Um, um, in terms of uh, scheduling, um, there's no study yet, but there is a uh, you know, the 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 uh, climatic, uh, the cycle, um, the weather patterns, uh, they usually harvest um, in just before summer or during you know, summer in the Philippines, July, June, July. And the, the uh, planting season is during the rainy season. So sometime in uh, November, December, January, um, and also it depends on the kind of of, of rice, uh, the variety. So, depending on on what their experience the past year, if it's wet, if it's dry, then they decide on what kind of, of variety they'll cultivate the next year, and that's um, the knowledge that being kept by by women um, uh, farmers. So they 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 are the repository of, of agricultural knowledge. Um, um, there's even a, a an inter, uh, it's like a follow period variety, which requires less uh, water. Um, it, it's, it's less preferred because it's, it's, it's dry because it doesn't need a lot of water, but it also has something to do with land tenure um, because uh, the tenants would be, be cultivating that uh, follow period variety and they will keep it um, if, if all of the, the regular Tina one uh, regular rice varieties that they cultivate and, and harvest during the reg regular season, then they are obligated to provide um, uh, the share to, to the landowner. Um, so there's, there are at least ethnographically, we have um, uh, knowledge of, of, of rice cultivation, consumption and, and uh, uh, in the region, but archeologically we don't have that much yet. Um, in, again, we don't even have evidence of rice that predates um, 1500s. Thank you. There's time for one more question. Uh, this is Jane again. And this is a little broad, but um, when you when you write about uh, population movements in response to colonialism, you bring up the term of uh, refugia. Um, they're often described in terms of isolation and referencing um, the work of Palka in Guatemala on zones of refuge, which is uh, ends up being the title of a, of a later article of yours. So I was wondering if you could say more about this idea of refugia of refuges as why this. Um, terminology can be problematic and maybe how archaeology can uh, uh, refute or rehabilitate that idea. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I actually used the term to critique the idea that um, 
um, that people move out, move up to the interior to escape um, uh, colonialism. In some sense, yes, but it was a, it's a, it's an active decision to move up to the interior. Um, I also use the term pericolonialism uh, to say that there's no uh, there's no such thing as uncolonized, unconquered maybe, but uncolonized is is um, bordering on on saying that these people are unchanging um, because the the concept of uncolonized means untainted, uh, unaffected by by the new group that came in. Um, and so the, the idea of pericolonialism, as I borrowed it from, from Amer Native American literature and a colleague here at UCLA who's looking at um, uh, another group in the Philippines, Southern Philippines among the Lumads. Um, and so, because I, I know that the idea of, of, of movement, moving into the interior of, of the mountain range um, will not be taken lightly by, by the communities that I work with. Um, and so, again, going back to our discussions, our community discussions about how do we, how do we explain the archaeological record and recon re reconcile it with, with um, community sentiments. And so we, we, we interpreted the data in terms of, of, of resistance. Um, Actually, now thinking about it, it's not resi just resistance. It's also accommodation because without accommodating the the the, in, the colonial um, enterprise, they wouldn't be able to successfully um, fight off um, attempts at conquest because they would need the resources um, that only the the colonial economy could could have given them and so they wouldn't have been able to access metal tools or um, weapons um, and, and or, or more more food for for the community thank you great thank you so much for joining us for this siams radio siams podcast we appreciated your illuminating answers to all of our questions You've been listening to Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Radio Science is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.